Hey you guys, it's Rob Liefeld welcoming you to another episode of Rob Observations. This is episode two, the 70s baby. Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld. We are back for another edition of Rob Observations. This is episode two of Rob Observations and we're going to call this the 70s Visionaries. So Last time around, I took you through the beginning of my comic book collecting, which was 1975, starting to get the hang of this thing. Comics come out monthly. I can get one a month. Avengers 141 becomes 142, becomes 143, and suddenly you've got this killer collection, and you've invested in not just the characters, but you've invested in the creators. 141 was the... Avengers 141 was the introduction to George Perez, who would go on to be a revolutionary figure in the world of comic books, especially for a formative young man like myself. But in in, in truth, when they welcomed him, welcome avenging ace George Perez, he was part of a new age of creators that was descending primarily on Marvel Comics. It was Marvel Comics where so many of these guys found their voices, where they got their shots, where they were able to build out these amazing transformative careers that would literally give depictions of modern Marvel characters as you know them today, starting in the mid-70s. And as, as some of you may know, and for those who don't, the 70s was a very exciting time in cinema. It was a time when Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, so many of these guys found their footing. They found their voices and they became the cinematic, you know, overlords that we understand and know about today. That this all happened in the 70s. And these guys were tearing it up. They became the new voices of cinemas. And and if uh if, if you were around as I was, their movies were the movies that everybody, everybody was clamoring to see. And uh, that, that, that it was just, you know, Taxi Driver, Mean Streets, The Godfather. Of course, you know, you know Star Wars and how it transformed the culture. You know, George Lucas, he was actually seen as the, the, the bubblegum member of the group, the, 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 the less intellectual you know, there was an infamous screening of Star Wars with his peer group, Scorsese and Coppola and, 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 and Spielberg. And, uh, and these guys uh, were less than enthused by Star Wars because they were the auteurs. They were the ones who were, the, were, were, were creating this new adult cinema. You know, uh, Warren Beatty also with Bonnie and Clyde. This was an age of uh, the studios did not know what to give the consumers and they were uh, relying on these visionary filmmakers who they didn't even start out trusting, but they delivered these classics. I mean, movies that are, are so ridiculously respected and influential, you don't get to Quentin Tarantino without Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola. You don't get to J.J. Abrams without Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. And in comic books, ironically, at the same time, this new group, this this group of Coppolas and Scorseses, Spielbergs, um, they were growing their craft 
and about to take over the comic book medium. And those guys, along with George Perez, are Frank Miller, John Byrne, Walt Simonson, Howard Chaikin, Jim Starlin. That's just, you know, that's 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 five or six of these guys, and they radically transformed the comic book scene. We were coming out of a period, you know, I was just starting to collect. But at the same time, during that time, Marvel had reprints of all of their early 70s, late 60s books uh, on the shelves. All the Spider-Mans were being reprinted in a book called Marvel Tales. Fantastic Four was being reprinted in a book called Marvel's Greatest Comics. The Avengers was Marvel Triple Action. So all of these books, you could get the modern Avengers. And at the same time, you're getting the 1969 adventures of the Fantastic Four as depicted by John Romita Sr., who was the immediate uh, successor to Jack Kirby when he left after his 101-issue run on Fantastic Four. And then you had John Buscema on the Fantastic Four. And, and those are the books that are coming out. Gil Kane's Spider-Man was coming out at the same time Ross Andrews' Spider-Man was coming out. And so this is a transitionary period these amazing illustrators, John Buscema, as I said in a previous podcast, how he was the Frank Frazetta of fig, figure drawing faces. The guy is uncelebrated as an artist. He's so spectacular. We've, we've, I feel we've taken him for granted. Um, it's because he did everything well. John Buscema was the Tim Duncan, follow me here with the NBA analogy, of, of comic books. They called Tim Duncan the big fundamental. He wasn't as big and strong a Shaq in his day. But he was fundamentally sound. He could pull you outside, make a mid-range shot if he had to. He'd launch from three. He launched from three in a game that almost sunk the Lakers in, in 2004. I mean, he could bang inside. He was your rebounder. Assists. Tim Duncan, the big fundamental. And no one ever got terribly excited about him because he did everything well and he wasn't flashy. He wasn't the guy that was going to take it on the break and leave the key at the top of the key, take it to the air and slam it through the hoop like Michael Jordan, like Kobe Bryant, like Vince Carter. And again, he wasn't the big strength and the thunderous power of Shaq. So John Buscema did everything well. There was no flaw in his game. He was the big fundamental of comic book artists. And that tended to make maybe people not appreciate him as he was entering his 10th year in comics. He was as proficient and prolific as Kirby was in turning out product. And so was his brother, who was very close to his execution. Sal Buscema uh, is not as celebrated as he should be either, in my opinion, delivered sometimes 60 pages a month for Marvel Comics. So what I'm setting up for you is 1972 to 1975-76, these guys are, they've been at it for a long time. They've been producing tremendous amounts of, 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 of pages between the Fantastic Four, the Avengers, Conan, Silver Surfer, Thor, John Buscema was everywhere. Similarly, Sal Buscema, Avengers, Hulk, all these different titles that he was, uh, defenders that he was covering. But then you got George Perez, who brought, even to my eye as a kid, I saw his page design, his layouts, they were different. They were, they were very stylistic. They were very personal to what he did. I hadn't seen his tricks before. He was maybe taking a little from Jim Starlin, who was, you know, exciting people on with his work on Captain Marvel and Adam Warlock. 
but he was starting to forge his own way. This design, page design that wasn't routine, wasn't something that we'd seen before with kind of the power and the figure work of, of Jack Kirby. Great gestures. And again, he liked to cram so many characters into a page that he became a master at it. Again, the author of the Avengers at that time, Steve Englehart, is quoted as saying that finally they got a regular penciler. Finally, George showed up and the book got cons some consistency. And that is what readers respond to if you are there for them month in and month out. And that is how careers were built. So shortly after this time, there's a guy named John Byrne. He's from Canada. He's doing work for Charlton Comics. I saw a couple of his books on the racks. They were sci-fi oriented. And suddenly, I see that this name John Byrne that I see in Charlton is doing Marvel Team-Up. He's doing Iron Fist. Uh, you know, so you got Marvel Team-Up's got Spider-Man and another major Marvel guest star every issue. Spider-Man and the Hulk, Spider-Man and the X-Men, Spider-Man and Warlock, Spider-Man and, you know, fill in the blank. Uh, Captain Marvel, Yellow Jacket, the Wasp. I mean, John Byrne suddenly was everywhere. He was, again, as prolific as somebody breaking in could be. He was doing 40 pages routinely, sometimes 60 pages. So John Byrne is on your spinner rack all the time depicting some of your favorite Marvel characters. At the same time, George Perez would also start doing art chores on Fantastic Four. So now you've got him on their two biggest team books. Fantastic Four was a number two seller behind Spider-Man at this point in the 1970s. But you've got this new guy, George Perez, coming in. You're starting to see his name on Fantastic Four issues where they're battling the Hulk. And this is exciting. I'm like, wow, the, the, the Fantastic Four are exploding out of a plane because the Hulk threw shrapnel at them. And they're all, you know, landing with their different superpowers, but the thing is pummeling right towards the Hulk, and they have a massive throwdown. And again, this is raw George Perez power and fury and excitement when you are seven to eight years old. John Byrne, Marvel team-up, Iron Fist. Iron Fist was a just a kick-ass comic of martial arts action. And he's battling all sorts of manner of Marvel villains, the Wrecking Crew. He's battling Captain America, an entire issue. Uh, Iron, Iron Fist was a very exciting comic. And John Byrne brought to my eye, because I was seeing anime at that time, early, early kind of versions of Japanese animation uh, with uh, Battle of the Planets, which was Gotcha Man in Japan, was now being broadcast early, Saturday, early Monday through Friday mornings, like 6.30 in the morning. Uh, as I got ready for school, uh, on on like the local station. So so in and uh, at the time, seventies Japanese animation. Also, Simba the White Lion. There was Ultraman, which was a live action show. There was Giant Robo, which was a uh, animated show. But each of these characters, they had bigger eyes. You know, the the Japanese animation. The characters generally, especially in this time, had noticeably bigger eyes. On their characters smaller noses longer faces and I saw John Byrne had a lot of this kind of Japanese influence it looked to me like he was getting as influenced by the cartoons that I was enjoying as much as he was being influenced by comic books so I am just uh, radically into this John Byrne cat he is drawing some really fantastic stories he is, uh, again, doing some interesting things with layouts. And if you don't think these guys were paying attention to, the, to, to what the other guy was doing, they were. And they would go out of their way to later on in interviews 
uh, in these comic book magazines that would, would become like the flavor of the day. At one point, there was like four or five of these comic book interview magazines where you could actually see what John Byrne was thinking. And he would tell you he was competing with George Perez. George was getting X amount of assignments and he wanted X amount of assignments. But what transformed John Byrne was when he famously took over a book called The Uncanny X-Men. So I covered recently in the last issue, last episode, that Giant Size X-Men number one came out in 1975 and transformed the X-Men with all new X-Men characters. Legend has it, I've read about it, Roy Thomas, the editor-in-chief at the time, has spoken of it, that the marketing department of Marvel was looking to expand into foreign territories. And they looked at an opportunity that the X-Men book represented as maybe putting more of an international cast that they could then expand and give more of an international appeal to Marvel Comics. So Giant Size X-Men number one has an African-American who is from Africa in Storm. And you've got a German named Nightcrawler. You've got an Irishman who's an existing character who's already appeared in the X-Men kind of as 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 a foil, as a villain. Um, now he's a hero alongside them. His name is Banshee. So you've got an Irishman, a German. You've got Aurora slash Storm, who's an African-American goddess, okay? With, you know, tall, beautiful, this flowing white hair, very striking costume design. Then we've got our Canadian. We've got Wolverine, who's now, from his appearance in the Hulk, he is taking a more prominent role in a Marvel comic alongside these international X-Men, and you've got Colossus, who's the Russian, okay? So then in that issue as well, Professor Xavier, who's recruiting all of them to save his old team because they are being held captive on a living island called Krakoa. This is the breakdown of Giant Size X-Men number one, beautifully illustrated by Dave Cockrum, one of the finest illustrators of this age, who also was huge, tremendous influence because he became a jackrabbit he did not achieve maybe the same notoriety success as a Frank Miller, John Byrne, George Perez, Walt Simonson, as, as, as I'm laying out for you. But in this Giant Size X-Men number one, you've got Sunfire, who's from Japan. So you've got a Japanese character, an African-American woman, uh, German, a Russian, an Irishman, a Canadian. So, wow, there is literally an international cast that has been assembled to save the X-Men, the original X-Men, who are being held captive. And it's, it's a really brilliant passing of the torch story. I, I, I think it's one of the best standalone comics I've ever read in my 40 plus years of reading comic books. And it is symbol, you know, very symbolic that the old X-Men who couldn't move comic books are tied up on an island while this exciting new team is being assembled to, to save them. And save them they do. And Giant Size X-Men lights the fuse and gets everybody excited and they come back. But they're on a bi-monthly schedule. Marvel is not all in on this yet. The sales aren't there yet. They come out six times a year. You knew this because on the bi-monthly books, it said bi-monthly, B-I-monthly. So six times a year, not 12 times a year. The ones that came out monthly didn't say that. Another book that we're going to get to that achieves this amazing turnaround, and this is what unites both of these. And again, they're united by visionaries. Daredevil, which was a book that had been downgraded to bi-monthly status after being a monthly book, and it was downgraded because, again, the sales weren't there to support it. You also had different books like Power Man, Luke Cage Power Man, 
it's funny, all these characters became Netflix shows, eventually teaming up as the the Defenders. But when you go Luke Cage and Daredevil, of course, Iron Man, these books were not, you know, reliable sellers, but Marvel wanted to keep them out there in the hopes that they would catch fire, that they would, uh, you know, become big sellers. It was better than, you know, canceling them for trademark, copyright, intellectual property reasons. They kept them around, but on bi-monthly schedules, Daredevil and X-Men. The X-Men is coming out. It's suddenly a book I can't get enough of. It went from a book I didn't want anything to do with for about to a book I had to interact with. I love this cast of characters. Colossus and red and yellow and silver and, and Wolverine and yellow and blue. and I mean, a very colorful, uh, very exciting assembly of characters. And they also, they have an Indian character. I'm leaving out Thunderbird. I knew I was leaving somebody out. In Giant Size X-Men, we also now had... An, American Indian. I mean, they really cast a wide net with this group of characters. And, you know, to this day, I'm not sure why I haven't tried to replicate that or someone else. It's such a brilliant idea. If it was, as it's been put forth, a marketing concept that then editorial closed in on, it is one of the best ever. I mean, it's fantastic. It, it really worked out for the best because this 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 group of characters had, had chemistry and they looked dynamic together. And I was swept up in them suddenly a book I never wanted to pick up because I felt the characters were very boring I call them arm casters and temple touchers Charles Xavier Jean Grey and Cyclops would put their hand up to their temple and fire a blast or a mental you know telekinetic force at you Angel would flap his wings Iceman would cast his arms and blast you with ice he's very uninteresting visually and then Beast would bounce around and jump and he wasn't as interesting as Colossus was as a strongman. If you'll notice also on the early issues of the Uncanny X-Men, Colossus was geared to be the star of the book. He is the leading figure coming out at you on Giant Size X-Men number one. On subsequent issues, he is a absolute beast of a figure. They put him out there in the biggest possible way. He is the largest... Um, he is the largest figure on on these cover pages. I mean, he he really is hard to miss, and they by design. And Marvel had a long history of really prominent strongman that reflected in good sales. The Hulk was always the featured figure on any cover of the Defenders. You know, ten out of twelve covers, he's the featured character. Big, green, awesome, magnificent. You had Thor, if he was in the Avengers, was always very, very strong with his hammer up, up front. The Thing was always a huge component of every Fantastic Four cover. And now you had Colossus. He was intended to be like the star of the book. That's interesting because what happened was Wolverine became the star of the book. You had Marvel's agenda, which was Colossus. The artist's agenda, which was Nightcrawler, who he favored. Dave Cockrum has been open. He did not care for Wolverine. He cared for Nightcrawler. He wanted Nightcrawler, a teleporting kind of blue elf, to be the star. That's who he enjoyed drawing and depicting the most. And you could see it in the book. He would give him prominent, you know, sequences, figures on the page. He favored Nightcrawler very much and not so much Wolverine. But then we've got this kid, John Burney, comes in. He's from Canada. So of course he's going to love the Canadian character, Wolverine. And he does. And he makes Wolverine the focal point of all of his images. And he starts taking over on the stories with the author, Chris Claremont, who took over the Uncanny X-Men after Giant Size X-Men number one. 
and became the dedicated author for the better part of two decades. But the book was never as resonant and never as impactful as it would be with John Byrne and Chris Claremont and another guy we're going to discuss later on down the line, Terry Austin, who is like a time traveler of 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 lines and art and and I've still people now are not executing the way he did with his ink design and technique it's it's literally I have originals from these books and they are the precision and the tools that he used we'll cover that soon enough but his combination with John Byrne would just transform a generation X-Men when John Byrne comes on in X-Men 108 Dave Cockrum says goodbye in 107. John Byrne steps on in 108, and the book just feels different. John Byrne has been honing his craft on Marvel Team-Up. He's been honing his craft on these Iron Fist issues, which he did with Chris Claremont, so they had that back and forth there. And uh, I'm telling you, these these, these Marvel Team-Up issues, don't sleep on these. Spider-Man, Captain Britain, Spider-Man, Ms. Marvel, Spider-Man. I mean, they're battling the Super Scroll in the Ms. Marvel issues, and, and I... The Super Scroll never looked better. The Super Scroll has all the powers of the Fantastic Four. So he's got a, a stretching arm that has rocks like the thing on it. And he's got his hand that's burning with flame in, in on the other arm. It, it's, just, it's, it's just an amazing visual designed by Jack Kirby, but never looked better under John Byrne's pencils. He and Chris are now clicking. And X-Men goes on this amazing journey. They have the definitive Magneto battle. The, the, the character that was in X-Men number one, that was their foil, their nemesis from the go, is now featured in this riveting, really a three-parter. He's at the end of one issue and carries them all the way through where he is battling the X-Men viciously, powerful, oppressively. He, 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 he takes them all to his lair, which is at the bottom of a volcano, holds them hostage. They have to figure out a way to break free. And then all hell breaks loose. They battle him. The volcano implodes. They break out. They're in Marvel's celebrated Savage Land with Kazar, who is a Tarzan echo. Uh, it doesn't end with the Squadron Supreme, as I said last, last time. Marvel has lots of mirrors of different characters that they just put their mighty Marvel application and touch on. But when the X-Men break out of the volcano at the base of it, and they are in the Savage Land. Those images are still in my, my, my head as clear as they were when I was nine years old. And they are standing, looking at pterodactyls and lush, you know, jungle greenery and, and, and tribal warriors. And suddenly, whoa, your favorite heroes, you know, their, their, their clothes are torn and tattered as a result of their throwdown with Magneto, and they are in the Savage Land for several issues where they encounter Sauron and Garok and just, uh, again, exciting. They attack this futuristic citadel in this double-page splash where they're as tiny as little ants on the page, and they're looking at this amazing technological wizardry pulled off by John Byrne and Terry Austin. There was passion, there was love, there was a new level of detail and storytelling and facial expressions. And John Byrne was taking his kind of his animation base uh, from Japanese animation style faces with bigger eyes, smaller noses, longer faces. But adding this Neil Adams, one of the greatest ever, the first kind of big fan favorite 
uh, comic book artist, this this amazing renderer, who had done a run on the X-Men before they were kind of exiled into a reprint book because Marvel just wanted to keep the book going. And so for about four years, the book just reprinted books. But the last hurrah was when Neil Adams, this uh, maybe, no, I'll say it. Neil Adams is the single best illustrator ever to work in comic books. He came from an ad background. He has done numerous film and and television advertising, uh, storyboarding. The guy... Uh, he's a wonderful man. Uh, if you get a chance to meet him at a show, definitely look through his work. Be amazed. He's still fantastic in his 70s. But he did a multi-issue run on the X-Men that they thought would turn the tide. And even Roy Thomas has said in interviews, you know, it just didn't happen. It didn't click. I maintain it was the characters. The characters were not visually compelling, not in the way that they were now and not in the way that they were under John Byrne and Terry Austin and Chris Claremont. And so... Again, you guys, this is just this amazing journey. The X-Men then go to Japan and they meet Sunfire again, who left the group after Giant Size X-Men number one. And they battle Moses Magnum and the Mandroids. And again, I could go on and on. Uh, What happens is the book then has this multi-part story involving kind of the the tormented son of one of the supporting cast members in the X-Men and his name is Proteus, and he bends and warps reality, and he kicks the crap out of the X-Men. Very exciting, very exciting story. Turns them against each other. Oh, it's just very, again, visually, when he's warping reality, it's like nothing you've ever seen. But when we come out of that, we have Dark Phoenix, which the, the seeds are, are growing, and Jean Grey is turning dark and, and becomes a cosmic power that rivals anything that has ever been in the pages of Marvel Comics. She literally destroys a planet. She consumes a planet in a way that we had, you know, been told Galactus, who was a great giant cosmic foe of, of the Fantasy Four, could do it. She, she does it. She, she wipes out a planet and becomes a cosmic nemesis across the universe. And this lands with the X-Men, who then have to unite to first take her down, which they struggle to because she's so powerful. But, you know, on the grounds of the mansion where the X-Men live, they are literally torn apart as their beloved original X-Men member, Jean Grey, no longer Marvel Girl, now the very powerful, very, very attractive, uh, very appealing Dark Phoenix, Phoenix slash Dark Phoenix emerges and just throttles them. And then there is the reckoning when the a galactic council led by an alien race called the Shi'ar decide to pronounce judgment on her and the X-Men have to fight for her on the moon against uh, a team that we're not going to cover today, but as I said with the Squadron Supreme, there's a group called the Imperial Guard, and they are absolutely, again, character for character, imitations, echoes, of a popular DC title called the Legion of Superheroes. They are And Dave Cockrum, who I mentioned earlier, who launched and, and, and did, you know, Giant Says X-Men number one, and then the, about the first, you know, 10 issues with the new team before John Byrne takes over and the book just ignites. Dave made his name on the Legion of Superheroes. He comes over and in his last issue, they are battling an echo of the Legion of Superheroes called the Imperial Guard. That team is still around today. They are still ridiculously exciting. It's a real regret of mine that I never got a shot at them because I would oh, I would love to do an Imperial Guard series. I've, I've drawn them into a couple issues of X-Force, but that's it. 
But anyway, you see I'm getting carried away here. But what happened in all of this is the X-Men goes from being a bi-monthly comic book to being Marvel's number one selling title on the other end of this. It goes from bi-monthly, six times a year, to it's so in demand under the pen of John Byrne and Terry Austin alongside Chris Claremont, the book becomes monthly. Because John Byrne, he can deliver. He can do this. He can, he can produce these pages. This book becomes Marvel's most exciting title, their number one comic. It pushes Spider-Man aside, the Fantastic Four aside, Avengers aside. By the way, John Byrne is drawing issues of Fantastic Four and Avengers during this time as well. He's no longer on Marvel Team-Up. He's now pinch-hitting, doing story arcs on the Avengers, and he's doing them on the Fantastic Four. But it is the X-Men that changes everything for him. Now let's backtrack. When did this happen? This happened from 1977 to 1980. That is the most exciting time the X-Men has ever experienced. The second kind of swoon that the X-Men would experience under a peer of mine named Jim Lee is, interestingly enough, almost page-for-page page sequels to all these John Byrne stories. Chris had moved beyond. The one thing about Chris Claremont, the author, he did not like to repeat himself. And I have mad respect for him. He wanted to go in new directions and forge, you know, new 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 paths for his characters. And by the time Jim comes, the X-Men in the late 80s are living in Australia. And their primary means of teleportation is through this, uh, this Australian uh, kind of wise man who has the ability to teleport them anywhere they want to go. But their their home base is in the outback in Australia. So you're like, what 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 happened? They're not at the mansion anymore. No, they were far removed from that, because Chris Claremont didn't like to repeat himself. But Jim Lee comes on, and I think like anybody my age, he wanted to kind of ring some familiar bells. Under his pen, he has them back in the Savage Land with Kazar Zabu. They are encountering the Imperial Guard, the Hellfire Club, bunch of Echoes. Sentinels, all these echoes from the greatest run ever. When I say the greatest run ever, these books are still demanding huge prices because they are everybody's favorite comic book from that age. And again, 1977 is when John Byrne comes on and he leaves the book in 1980 because he's now become such a powerhouse. He doesn't have to work with anybody else and really for the next 15 years just writes all his own work. He exits X-Men, but when he exits, it's the number one book for Marvel. It is their top-selling book. It has been transformed. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about visionary talent. These weren't editorial components. This wasn't in a planned retreat, the kind of stuff that they do nowadays, where they want to control things. This was an artistic vision that was given a path and just let rip. John Byrne let it rip. His Wolverine was much more feral. He piled on the hairy arms, uh, made him even more stout. Those claws, Colossus became shinier. Storm became sexier to 9 and 10 and 11-year-old boys. Um, Nightcrawler became even slicker. Uh, when Jean Grey was at her power with Phoenix, Dark Phoenix, I mean, the figures that he would cut with his pencil, the the depictions of power, the display. When, when, when Phoenix eats this planet, it, it is visually just amazing. The detail that he puts in his work, it was a, another level from anything that came before it. It was this new level of detail, whether it was the rubble, whether it was the trees. Maybe Barry Windsor Smith, who had done an acclaimed 
Conan run was the closest thing you could get to what John was now regularly pulling off on a much uh, accelerated schedule. You were getting this book monthly. So X-Men blows up. John Byrne becomes a household name. Chris Claremont becomes the top author. Terry Austin is the most in demand anchor. Well, what's happening right at the tail end of this at the same time? Let's go back to Daredevil, also bi-monthly. Also bi-monthly. Daredevil's kind of a joke book. Uh, Daredevil was always kind of seen as, by the fans, they did not embrace him like they embraced Spider-Man. He was seen as kind of a poor man Spider-Man, a guy on the rooftops in New York City who swung around using a billy club with a with a with a rope, a line, and and used kind of acrobatic feats and these senses that he had. Spider-Man had senses. Daredevil had enhanced senses since he was blind. But his rogues gallery, the bad guys, they weren't as exciting. We literally had the jester. Stan Lee and Gene Colan came up with the jester, who is literally, I kid you not, you'll go see him, he is a pale imitation of the Joker. The jester, the Joker, the Joker, the jester. Daredevil, Batman, Spider-Man, who is he, what is he? Daredevil was bi-monthly struggling, and I really believe at the end of his rope, when a young buck named Frank Miller comes on the, bo- on the book in 1979. So, late 70s, Frank Miller emerges, at first alongside a really great writer named Roger McKenzie. His contributions early on cannot be discounted. Those books were great. I would grab them, but I, I, I've got to go back to. Daredevil was a book that I would pick up from 1975 on, and I would always put back. Sometimes they had great covers. Marvel Marvel's cover game was outstanding. Dave Cockrum, Gil Kane, Gene Colan, but I always put it back. It 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 looked it looked like it wasn't Marvel's priority. It looked like a book they weren't putting their top talent on, and so it was a self fulfilling prophecy. What X Men and Daredevil have in common here are these young talents: twenty something John Byrne, twenty something Frank Miller. The transformation of Daredevil is even more fantastic than what I am telling you about X-Men. From a book I never picked up, I would never never made it to the cash register for me. I had all my lawn money. As I'm getting older now, in the late 70s, I'm mowing more lawns. I'm saving my lunch money. I'm, I'm using it. One time, literally, I brought like $20 in change. I'm that kid. And I remember the death stares at the market as I poured out the nickels, dimes, quarters from my glass jar as I was buying five or six comics during the summer. And I mean, if they would have assaulted young Robbie Liefeld, they, they would have. I, I just kept looking away. I was so nervous that the, the stairs and the, and the lady was really sweet as she counted up my change and cleared me to buy all these comics. But Daredevil wasn't among them until Frank Miller. He changed it. How did he change it? He approached it completely differently. He took over the writing of the book and stayed on that book for four years following. And what he did was he brought this mashup of Hong Kong cinema, of gangster films like Scorsese and Coppola, and this hand-to-hand Bruce Lee-level combat with the dynamics of a Gil Kane, one of the best ever in the business from the 60s, early 70s, that's his peak era. And and also, Frank Miller, his pages read like films. Now, now when you say Hong Kong cinema life, what, what are you in 1979? What, what, what are you, you 11? Yes, I am 11. But again, back in 1975, if you grew up, I, I, I've talked to guys in New York 
everybody had Channel 7, the ABC network here in Southern California. And I, as I understand it, it was all across the country from three to five every day. There wasn't talk shows. There wasn't Oprah. There wasn't Donahue. These, these didn't happen until the eighties. In the seventies, you got stripped out Monday through Friday was always theme weeks. The, 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 the afternoon movie, the afternoon movie was something you raced home and you turned on your TV and give you an idea. Monday through Friday would be go ape week, go ape week, planet of the apes beneath the planet of the apes, escape from the planet of the apes, conquest of the planet of the apes, battle for the planet of the apes. I'm not sure there was a better Monday through Friday any time that ape week was on. When go ape week was on, it was off the chain. They had monsters week, Godzilla, every Godzilla movie that they could release on a Monday through Friday. And it always ended with destroy all monsters, Mechagodzilla. First one was Godzilla. They'd maybe throw King Kong in there. Then you get Godzilla versus King Kong. I mean, guys, this was fantastic. But what they also had inside of these, you know, they, they needed theme weeks. They had lots of Bruce Lee movies, lots of Hong Kong action movies, what I would call Grindhouse. They had to fill all these days. So that is where I was first in kids of the 70s, know what I'm talking about, when the guy's mouth is moving and then the words came out later. They would send this up in later parody films. But that's where kids my age in 1975 through 1977, 78, when before the advent of the afternoon game show or the afternoon talk show, it was, you know, Monday through Friday, movie week, theme weeks. And so I saw a lot of martial arts movies and I recognized that Daredevil suddenly had its emphasis on martial arts action as Daredevil no longer battled the jester. Daredevil was battling a a villain from the Spider-Man rogues gallery who had never really, with me, struck a chord, not like Dr. Octopus or Sandman or the Vulture or Craven. It was the Kingpin, the Kingpin of crime, who was always this heavy set, um, doughy guy with a with a cane and a and a scarf and a white suit. The Kingpin of crime. The Kingpin of crime that you have seen depicted on Netflix is the Kingpin of crime that Frank Miller re, refurbished. He became a terrifying crime lord along the lines of somebody you would see in The Godfather. He was uh, completely in command of a giant crime family that Frank Miller went to great pains to depict the network they had. He, he, he created these haunts in Hell's Kitchen, these dive bars, and alleyways that Daredevil would go to get information to track down these different crime elements. And everyone was scared of the kingpin. And then you saw the kingpin. You saw him without his shirt for the first time as he's training as a sumo kind of warrior alongside other sumos. And then later against ninjas as he took them on. And, 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 and kingpin was no longer this joke in a, you know, in, in a... Uh, he was no longer this joke in a, in, a, in a big white suit with a scarf. He was literally a terrifying, uh, powerful figure that, that, that was taking down sumo wrestlers in these brutal hand-to-hand competitions. And then uh, other martial artists breaking their legs, slamming them into the ground. I mean, it could not be more exciting. He created a formidable menace to Daredevil as he started taking 
hits out on him, employing assassins to kill Daredevil. But most importantly, Frank Miller introduced into the mythos this incredible character called Electra. And Electra, Electra Nachos, was a former lover from Matthew Murdoch, who's the secret identity or the real persona of Daredevil. Electra was a Greek uh, flame from, she, she was from Greece and was attending college alongside Matthew Murdoch, and they had this hot and heavy romance. And then her uh, family was involved, her dad was involved with some crime, and there was some separation between her and Matt, and it ended poorly, and she disappeared, and they had this long lost love, this kind of, uh, you know, uh, forbidden love that separated them. And Electra comes back into Daredevil's life as this formidable assassin who can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him that he doesn't recognize at first as his former flame from college. And she has these size, these weapons, uh, these, these incredible martial arts moves, and she's taken out ninjas and hitmen and crime lords, and suddenly she's dominating the scene in New York City, and she is deep under Matt Murdock, Daredevil's skin. And they are on opposite sides. They have some knockdown dragouts. But again, the way this book is told is what I call widescreen panels. Suddenly, Frank Miller is the master of these long landscape panels. The other night, I was asked to record something, and they said, do it in landscape. Okay? We all know what landscape is. But it was no longer a grid. The grid was gone with Frank Miller. Six panel, five panel, five panel, four panel grid. No, it was these, these escalating landscape panels stacked on top of each other, and they would move your eye like like cinematically and it was something to behold i mean frank miller is one of the top storytellers to ever draw comic books and to guide your eye and early on in my career i stayed with two outstanding artists when i was visiting new york for the first time one is mike zek who famously drew the punisher and captain america and the biggest crossover of his age secret wars huge fan favorite huge amazing accomplished artist and jerry ordway who penciled uh, Superman for years, uh, All-Star Squadron, and most famously the Batman, the original Batman, Jack Nicholson, Michael Keaton uh, film adaptation, which is just beautiful. These two guys are amazing artists. And we were, I stayed with them in Connecticut uh, for several days, and we had lots of talks about storytelling. And they said, Mike Zek famously told me, Rob, storytelling is the biggest component, the most important thing you can master as a comic book artist, leading someone's eye through the page from the top left to the bottom right in some sort of inverted S or a Z pattern is the difference between when they close that book and they separate it from a book they liked and a book they loved. And the better the storytelling, the more they love the book. I took that to heart. It's one of the things that I have worked hardest to, to, to apply to my craft is really top-notch storytelling and there was nobody better at it and you could, and I knew exactly what Mike Zick was saying because I felt it from every page Frank Miller did. Daredevil is transformed. Everything I'm telling you is clicking with little Rob Liefelds all over the country as Daredevil becomes the number two best-selling comic for Marvel. Also, under Frank, no longer bi-monthly, no longer six issues, his work is selling so well that they are now putting Daredevil out a full 12 months a year. And you're getting double-sized issues. And Frank is up to the task, man. And I am just telling you, 
the action adventure, the battle on the rooftops, on battle, these acrobatic, violent, bloody exchanges on clotheslines that are 10 stories above the street, higher, 30 stories. I mean, just breathtaking visuals. He made a character that was kind of a goofy character called Bullseye into this raving lunatic madman. There is an issue where Frank depicts Der Bullseye, Bullseye as he's broken out of an insane asylum. And he shows you from his POV that everything he sees is, is not as we see it. And, and he sees everybody as, as Daredevil at certain points. And he is literally insane. Like, honestly, I, I believe Frank's depiction of Bullseye in the comic books is as frightening as anything in, in these formative issues as, as they have done with the Joker. But this is the work of one guy who is now writing and drawing this book every month, blowing our minds, doing storytelling techniques that are not like what John Byrne is doing, that are not like what George Perez is doing. Completely, completely uh, different takes on the page, a different form of storytelling, very, very paced. You could feel when he wanted to slow the story down, he slowed the story down, speed it up, speed it up. And his page design was fantastic. And he worked with, as I mentioned with John Byrne, he worked with one of the most outstanding embellishers, inkers, a complimentary artist that finished his work named Klaus Janssen, who is one of the best that ever did it alongside Terry Austin. The 70s had was the age of the embellisher. These guys who could take another artist's chicken scratchings and render them as beautifully as a Neil Adams drawing because they came from Neil Adams Studios in many cases. Klaus, Terry Austin, several others came from the tutelage of Neil Adams. And it showed. So Daredevil becomes bottom of the bin. And these are the, the sales charts back all of this up. Books have been read about this. But to see it happening in real time, it's just fantastic. You are watching the birth of a visionary. John Byrne on X-Men. Frank Miller on Daredevil. What happens? Two of the lowest-selling Marvel books become the number one and then the number two best-selling books in Marvel's catalog. They are the most in demand and, as you would expect, suddenly the most imitated. Uh, X-Men would inspire a lot of imitators. Daredevil was a harder Harder one to pull off because it was so signature Frank Miller. The tone, the crime, the martial arts. I mean, look, he brought in a clan of ninjas, indestructible ninja warriors. He brought in the Yakuza. I learned what the Yakuza was through Daredevil. That's the best part of comics, too, is when they're teaching you stuff. You're like, what is the Yakuza? And Frank Miller knew that maybe kids needed to come into speed, that the Yakuza is you know, Japanese gang warfare and these are Japanese gangs and they're moving drugs and they're moving arms and have political machinations. Oh my gosh, all this stuff that Frank was doing. 1979, 1980, 1981. If you put a gun to my head, the best period of comics, 1977 to 1981 is for me, peak Marvel. Peak Marvel. Uh, and you've got guys, like I've mentioned, like Walt Simonson who are busting in. He doesn't take over Thor until the early 80s, 82, 83. And then he transforms Thor in the way that Daredevil was transformed by Frank Miller. Just balls to the walls, imaginative, all new applications that never had been seen in Thor. But we're going to do that in another podcast. A guy named Jim Starlin, you know him because he created Thanos. He did not create Warlock. He took a masterful turn at Warlock 
and uh, really an artsy run, which which questioned, you know, deities, God, life, death. It was heady stuff as a kid. I'm like, wow, I, I recognize that I am reading well above me. But Jim Starlin, writing and drawing, writing and drawing, Adam Warlock, penciling and inking sometimes too. I mean, not just drawing, also doing the finished inks, but very signature artistic voices are 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 what we're getting on these books and uh warlock was like no book you'd ever read and we haven't seen adam warlock in media yet so you're not as familiar with him but thanos became a premier a-list tier villain because jim starlin put thanos's agenda into the avengers and spider-man and the thing and it's a huge crossover the summer of 77 Jim Starlin does two back-to-back annuals. An annual, for those of you who don't know, was a double-sized issue, always released in the summer when I was a kid. You look forward to it because you're going to get bonus issues. The Avengers got an annual. The X-Men got an annual. Fantastic Four got an annual. Hulk got an annual. The Spider-Man, all of them. And it was generally a special event. They got some good talent. Again, talent was leading the way. Talent was transforming these books. If, if, if an... There's no way an editor would have come up with what Jim Starlin or Frank Miller did or, or John Byrne and Chris Claremont. They were so signature to what these voices created and when they would then consistently create. It's like a song or like a band, you know? When U2 came out, especially their first four albums, no one sounded like U2. The Eagles in the 70s had a signature sound. This kind of uh, Southern, Southern Californian country, you know, blues mashup that 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 fit them perfectly and 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 of course you know you always had these amazing musicians that had signature styles which is why we identify their music with them specifically and why we see think some songs are sung best by the originators originators of those songs the same is to be true and said with frank miller walt simonson jim starlin jim starlin's adam warlock run transforms the character to this really dark cosmic entity tormented um again uh, uh, dealing with 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 really like jesus christ superstar in space is the best i can say it literally was like he was playing out the deity in in space and and i jim starlin knew what he was doing the guy was super creative very artsy but it was like nothing you'd ever seen but then thanos who had been tormenting warlock turns his ire on the avengers and it's a two-issue story, about 40-plus pages. No, 60. 60 pages, Jim did, that, again, it's seen as a classic. Those are the books that my generation associate when Thanos was like, oh my gosh, this is terrifying. He is scary. He is taking on Thor, Iron Man, Captain America, Scarlet Witch, Vision, Spider-Man, and The Thing. The Avengers are wiped out by Thanos in the Avengers Annual 7. And in the Marvel 2 annual that came a month later, Spider-Man gets a vision. Someone reaches out to him, shows him the events. He goes to the Fantastic Force, shares his vision. The thing is there. They decide to check it out, take the ship up. Boom, they're engaged against Thanos and have to free the Avengers. And this is not goofy stuff. This is great looking stuff. Jim Starlin, powerful figure work. His trunks and chests and, and the rib cages and the hips. There was just power in those figures. And again, beautifully rendered faces. Just such an accomplished style. Such an accomplished storyteller. So the age of Jim Starlin, the age of Frank Miller, the age of John Byrne, 
George Perez is tearing it up at the same time. Memorable Avengers storyline after memorable Avengers storyline. In the 70s, the Avengers met their match in a character called Korvac. This cosmic entity that traveled to Earth, took on human form, and was so threatened that all these other cosmic deities were arriving on Earth to try and interfere with him and stop him, and only then revealed their agenda to the Avengers who would then engage him and and literally the issue where he takes out all the Avengers is before meeting his own fate again a culmination of a years long storyline year and a half and Jim Jim Shooter who was editor-in-chief was a fantastic writer came up again singular voice huge impact came up at DC Comics as the youngest writer he wrote comic stories to them in the mail they grabbed them they published them i would read stories about jim shooter in the late 60s early 70s and be like there's a high school kid writing superboy and the legion of superheroes he would then go on to be the editor-in-chief and write for me the very best run of the avengers and that is alongside george perez who was feeling it maybe the best team book artist ever could could juggle a giant cast with giant emotions Characters with tremendous power who are also dealing with insecurities and self-doubt, but tremendous impact. So this is the age of the Scorseses and the Coppolas and the Spielbergs and the Lucases. Who, what I'm scratching at here, Frank Miller takes Daredevil, transforms him, and the Daredevil that you see on Netflix over three seasons that Charlie Cox is um, depicting, okay, that is Frank Miller's Daredevil. The X-Men that you saw, the entire Fox era, the good stuff, even the stuff you didn't like, but mostly the good stuff, Days of Future Past, X-Men 2, those are John Byrne stories. Those are stories that John Byrne and Chris Claremont made that you're seeing in the 2000s, 2002, 2004, in Daredevil, you're seeing it in 2014, 2015, 16, okay? That's impact. That's, you know, when I see, I can still see Martin Scorsese's influence on filmmakers today. That's impact. That's the power of Mean Streets and of Goodfellas and of Taxi Driver. Frank Miller is still impacting the sound stages today in Hollywood. 300, Dark Knight, Daredevil. The guy, it all started in comic books in 1979 with this Daredevil run where he took a book that was bi-monthly and near cancellation and made it the number one single character eclipsing Spider-Man, but behind X-Men, which was now number one eclipsing Fantastic Four and Avengers. Nobody saw this coming. This is an editorial. This is artistic vision. This is how exciting these times are. But the work of John Byrne, Chris Claremont, is what gives you Hugh Jackman, is what, you know, gives you these exciting depictions, mystique, you know, uh, by Rebecca Romaine, Jennifer Lawrence, you know, all of these characters, these depictions of these characters, stuff that I still want to see. If they could pull those John Byrne, Savage Land, X-Men stories off, which I was hoping they would do, do, do sooner, there is some amazing, exciting, high adventure. Imagine the X-Men in Jurassic Park, except it's not a park. It's literally below the equator and this entire prehistoric world that, that is maybe kitty corner, kitty corner to Wakanda. I mean, just exciting exciting stuff we haven't seen yet that we're dying to see that I want to see before I see anything else 
When Grant Morrison came along, 10 years after Jim Lee, he also seemed to do a lot of sequels to the Chris Claremont, John Byrne stuff. Imperial Guard, you know, The Shire. Uh, so much of it was, hey, I read this as a kid. I want to emulate this. These are the films, the stories, the cartoons, the cartoons. The X-Men animated series owes everything to the John Byrne, Chris Claremont run in the same way that the Netflix, you know, countless with 30 episodes of Daredevil, you know, multiple Batman films, cartoons are the product of Frank Miller's talent. What you saw in Thor Ragnarok was the closest you've gotten to a Walt Simonson Thor comic. And we're going to cover that in a future episode because we don't have time to delve into Howard Chaikin and Walt Simonson and George Perez with the depth that they deserve today. But certainly Jim Starlin, I work with Jim. Uh, I hired him when I had my own imprint and sweet guy, amazing, just so exciting. But I, most importantly, I was able to hang out with Jim as uh, he saw Infinity War and Endgame take over the world. And, and Thanos became the biggest thing ever. And, and this week, I, I, I see that, you know, and Josh Brolin, who I was fortunate enough to get to know, and I call a friend who has uh, depicted Cable uh, in, in, in Deadpool, also became this worldwide icon known as Thanos. Maybe the most popular villain ever, but this week Josh shares, and that's what I'm alluding to, Josh shares on his Instagram that, Hey, I won the best villain of all time in some, you know, outstanding poll and some voting. And look, look, Thanos is pure Jim Starlin, you know, and the Infinity Gauntlet, the the collection of the Infinity Stones. You're watching Jim Starlin. And when did that comic book take place? When did that formulate? When did that first, you know, come together? 1977. So, again, as that's my journey. Those are the books that I would buy on the spinner rack. Avengers 7, when Thanos decimates the Avengers, my mom pulled in to the liquor store on our way to Huntington Beach, and I grabbed that comic off the stands. It was 50 cents, 60 cents. Grabbed it, and my mom said to me, why did I even come to the beach? You haven't gotten off the towel. It's because I kept reading Avengers Annual 7 over and over and over again. And if you grabbed it today, it would be better than any Avengers comic you've picked up in the last 20 years. Put me to the test. Go get that comic. Go open that comic. Go look at the story, the visuals, the drama, the conflict. Jim Starlin is an outstanding A-list comic book master. And that Avengers Annual 7, my mom's like, why do we come to the beach? Why are you not in the ocean water? And I'm like, oh man, I got got to make my mom happy. And you know what? I've been pouring over this comic for hours under this umbrella on this giant blanket and towel. And of course, I ran in, splashed in the water and made my mom happy, made the journey complete. But really all I wanted to do was get in the car, go home and read that comic 10 more times. And that is the work of visionaries. That is not corporate created comics that is visionary talent that would later you know become chris evans chris hemsworth robert downey jr scarlett johansson josh brolin all throwing down with each other tom holland because like i said spider-man's in that story the precursor when they wipe thanos out jim would revisit this all in the infinity gauntlet as i said in the uh, late 80s early 90s and i mean that's that's visionary Frank Miller would then go on to transform Batman. Like I said, from Daredevil to Batman. And then he'd start 
telling the battle, you know, of 300. And, and that becomes this amazing cinematic blockbuster. And it was started on the page in a comic book. And that's the kind of stuff that just turns me on and just gets my crank going. And I am telling you, again, these are, I've been able to meet most of these guys and, and, and uh, you know, I'll close this out with a story of my very first comic convention, which was uh, my big comic convention. I had been to a couple local Anaheim Disneyland hotel conventions where they had one or two guests. It's where I got to meet George Perez and pour over his art and gush over him and tell him how much I loved his work. But I had just discovered comic book stores in the early 80s. And I remember I saw this comic book newspaper called the Comic Book Buyer's Guide. They called it the CBG, Comic Book Buyer's Guide. And in it had a giant full-page ad talking about the San Diego Comic-Con. Well, I, I live in Orange County, San Diego. We go there all the time, okay? A couple times a year at least. The train, we drive down. It's, you know, it was a great getaway for our family. And I said, Dad, there's this convention. It's in the summer. It's in July. It's, it's at the convention center, the local convention center, not the monolith that we would all start attending in, in 1991, but the, the, the first convention center in downtown San Diego really great building every time I drive by it I am swept up in these memories and my dad he saw the passion that I had and he said son you save up the money and we'll make it a trip you and me we'll make it a weekend trip so my dad and I look forward to this six weeks later I've mowed enough lawns I've pocketed all my money I'm gonna buy a drawing so my dad and I headed down to San Diego for the San Diego comic-con 1982 and I could not be more thrilled he gets us train tickets. We get a hotel overnight. And I know my dad is just showing me so much love. He is like, son, I know you dig this. I'm not really into this. When we came out of Star Wars, for instance, in 1977, and I'm swinging around an imaginary lightsaber and asking my dad, dad, did you love that? Did you love that? He opened the door. He got in the car. He started the engine and he said, you know, I love a good drama. He always called dramas drama. I'm not into that sci-fi stuff. But he knew his son was, and I was into comics. So he was totally 100% on board. It was a dad and son weekend. It's one of my golden memories. We went down there. <laughs> he was, I think, really uh, entertained. So all the comic artists in 1981 looked like rock musicians. You know, they looked like members of Steely Dan and Fleetwood Mac. You know, um, Ted Nugent, Aerosmith, long hair. You know, beards, a lot of Santa Claus beards. And uh, I entered San Diego and, and the list of names was incredible. That's what attracted me to, to getting there in the first place was this ad in the comic book buyer's guide. The CBG had these amazing, every name in comics. Dave Cockrum, Jim Starlin, George Perez, John Byrne, Chris Claremont. I mean, just overwhelmed. Well... I go in to the convention center and I enter the hall and immediately to my left is, you know, small crowd, people thumbing through uh, different art and pages and, and all together, it is, uh, it is Dave Cockrum, Chris Claremont, George Perez, John Byrne, all these guys, they're all sitting together. And they all look like Santa Claus with kind of dirty beards. 
like long hippie hair, big mustaches, burly guys, beards. And I think my dad, Mr. Clean Cut Baptist Minister, was like, you know, I'll, I'll be over here, son. You know, just enjoy yourself. And I approached these guys, and I had seen George Perez before, and I had bought some art and some comics from him. And so he was very gregarious and kind and loving and warm. That, that, that was his vibe. That's what he always put off. Anybody who's ever met George un- immediately understands what I'm saying. George Perez, such a sweetheart. And everyone that I know who was touched by him tries to emulate that when, when we go out on the convention circuit. But George was really kind. And so then you had Chris Claremont, who was kind of like a snooty professor. And he still is a snooty professor. And that's kind of his warmth. His, it's, I don't say that as an insult. It's, it's his vibe. It's, it's, uh, he kind of knows he's smarter than you and maybe more accomplished than you and well read, better read than you. And that's the vibe he was giving off to this teenager who, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, 14 and thrilled to be there. Okay. A couple years, a couple months from 15, but so excited, so excited. And, uh, and then I, and Dave Cockrum is just like George Perez laughing, funny, sweet, kind, oh, how you doing? Really gregarious. And then there's John Byrne. I, I, I can barely even hold it together as I stand in his presence. And you want to talk gruff. And you want to talk off-putting. He doesn't want to look you in the eye. He doesn't want to make small talk. He has a sign, you know, artist on duty, artist off duty. And you're like, is this guy weird? And you know what? Here's the deal, man. He was. He was a weirdo. And you know what? I was a weirdo. So weird recognizes weird. We're all weird. We're all drawn cartoons. I wanted to be a cartoonist. They are cartoonists. They have what I want, a career in comics. But John Byrne's a scary guy. Chris Claremont, kind of a standoffish guy. John Byrne, way standoffish guy. But man, they made my favorite comic of all, of all time. They were, the, they were the X-Men team, the golden age, the gold standard of the X-Men, what everything was based off. And I just stood there and was just so excited to tell him how great I loved his work. I couldn't get on his list. John Byrne was obviously packed the we were there on a saturday he'd already taken a list on a friday but it was great these guys would come with xeroxes of their work advanced issues john byrne was had moved on to the fantastic four george perez had moved on to dc but he had marvel and dc work that he was displaying dave cockrum was coming back to the x-men just exciting time just a super exciting time and i'm sitting there in the presence of all these guys and i know that they are the guys that shake the needle at the comic store, at the spinner rack. They're the books that sell out, the books that you got to be there earlier, they're going to disappear. And they are the builders of what we experience today. Uh, so much of what we've experienced, as I've covered, whether you paid a ticket to a Fox film and saw the X-Men, you know, whether it was, you know, The Wolverine, the entire Japanese adventure that Chris Claremont authored, Days of Future Past, which is the greatest work that John Byrne and George and, and Chris Claremont did together. Again, all the Daredevils, all the Batmans, all a reflection. To this day, what what Frank did with Batman and Daredevil is still being emulated to this day. When a new team takes over, they're immediately trying to somehow give you what Frank did on Daredevil. Every time Daredevil has attempted to be cool again, they go to this template that Frank gave, which was, especially later on, very Catholic, uh, Catholic guilt, nuns, um, 
I mean, he, Frank Miller introduced the guy that trained Daredevil in, in the in the years that he was, you know, tormented by not having sight. He created this character called Stick, which you saw uh, on the Netflix show. And, and Stick was right out of Frank Miller's brain. No one had ever seen Stick before Frank Miller introduced stick and introduce the hand and all of these elements and Electra, bullseye kingpin all their depictions is what you've seen is the stuff that you've been seeing in the last few years and probably the stuff you're going to see moving forward the ben affleck daredevil also trying to be the frank miller books the Electra standalone movie with jennifer garner doesn't exist without frank miller um george perez would go on to even bigger and better stuff in the 80s at DC Comics, he became the face of DC Comics. A canny, baller move. I think seeing John Byrne and Frank Miller blow up at Marvel, George said, I would be better served being the A-list superstar at DC Comics, which he was. He got all the plum assignments and became the guy that turned DC around and prepped it for what eventually would be a migration of both Frank and John, who would join him at DC Comics. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's the middle of the 80s. But all this stuff... This stuff started in the 70s, just like Steven Spielberg and and George Lucas are credited with the blockbuster film. And and again, Steven Spielberg, remember Jaws is 1975, Close Encounters is 1978, Raiders of the Lost Ark is 1981, okay? E.T., the year, the year following. Steven Spielberg made his mark in the 70s. He was the, moder- the father of the modern blockbuster with Jaws. George Lucas would then redefine what a blockbuster was with Star Wars. You know, previously defined by the two guys with their kind of uh, crime, street crime, crime family focuses between Coppola and Scorsese. Now, the blockbuster popcorn film. These guys are all tremendously influential, just like these guys in comics. Who Scorsese, I can see his influence on Frank Miller in the pages, like I said, the crime lord stuff. But Frank Miller mashing it up with martial arts and grindhouse, you know, Hong Kong cinema. Didn't see that coming. But it made Daredevil must read a book you never didn't pull off the top of your pile and read first. And the stuff that he did and 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 the, the twists and turns that that story takes and that series takes. I mean, the book sold hundreds of thousands of copies, hundreds of thousands under Frank became a booming financial success. And, and it, again, it all started in the 70s. So 70s visionaries were not just the domain of cinema. It was the domain of comic books, where Frank Miller, Jim Starlin, John Byrne, George Perez would go on to inspire the next generation, my peer group. You better believe it. We were reading their comics. We were the teenagers drinking that stuff up, hoping to do what they did. And we're fortunate enough that we did. Once again, I thank you for joining me on this journey through comic books and how it pertains to today and the impact that it's had on what you're seeing and consuming right now. We're going to do a part two of this. We're going to revisit the 70s. We're going to go further into another group of tastemakers, influencers who really put comic books on its ear, Howard Chaikin, Walt Simonson. Uh, that's coming up in a, in a future installment, but thank you for spending your time with me on this podcast. I love 
to share the history of comics in real time, how it affected me there in 1977, 78, 79, 80. Again, my golden era, the best Marvel ever was, the Avengers, the Fantastic Four, X-Men, all that stuff, top tier. And then how it formulated the movies and the television that you've seen. It happened in these pages. It happened because of these visionaries. Thank you for listening to Rob's Observations. Thank you uh, for following me on Instagram at Rob Liefeld, on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. I'm all over social media. I love to talk comics and preach the gospel of comic books and graphic novels. Take care of yourself, stay out of trouble, and we will talk soon.